as I tell my patients in, in our office, I have two ears and one mouth and I need to use those in, in, in correct and direct proportion because, and so you, you actually threw out the point of, you know, what do you tell a patient on how to select a provider? Find a provider that listens. Hey guys, this is Dr. John Stenberg, and this is the Thrive for the Cause podcast special segment that I title Talk with a Doc, where we get to let you in on some of the behind the scenes conversations that go on between providers. So in this episode, I'll be sharing some content from a conversation that I had with a fellow healthcare provider where we sit down and talk about uh, our views on the healthcare system, our views on health and well-being, uh, some of the details about the services we provide and how we're uniquely positioned to help you optimize your health. So enjoy these tips and tricks. And for additional resources and information, I'll link the contact information of the provider in the show notes so that you've got access to that resource. So thanks for listening to the Thrive for the Cause podcast. This is Talk with a Doc. All right, today on the podcast, I'm excited to have my friend, Dr. Justin Manning. Uh, We're going to talk about healthcare system why it's so expensive, why the outcomes are so bad, you know, really give the average person an understanding of the current state of things, you know, in our healthcare system, because we deal with patients all the time who don't really understand why things are the way they are and what they need to do to get the most out of their, uh, not just their plan, but just how to be healthy and and, uh, maximize those benefits so that you don't have to use them and accrue healthcare costs. Uh, So Justin, just introduce yourself, uh, your practice, uh, your training, all that sort of thing, what you do here in Colorado Springs, then we'll just kind of jump right into some of the bits and pieces. Great. Thanks, John, for having me on the podcast today. I'm excited to be here. So I'm Dr. Justin Manning. I'm an optometrist and the medical director of Bettner Vision, uh, a optometric practice here in Colorado Springs. I completed my optometry degree at Ohio State University. I uh, I completed an accredited residency training program uh, in geriatric optometry in the VA system in Washington State. I spent a year and a half teaching optometry in Central America. Had some uh, pretty interesting experiences learning about healthcare systems and being a part of the of a different healthcare system abroad uh, in the developing world. I finished a Master of Public Health degree uh, just recently and uh, been in Colorado Springs for going on two years now. All right. So when we think about the the healthcare system at large, most of us, and this is something we had talked about just before the show here, most of us enter the system when we have a problem, right? So we've got some sort of health challenge, some sort of disease process that we want to manage, mitigate, eliminate, treat. And that's usually the way that we enter the system. That's how we navigate the system. And depending on those outcomes, that's how we either get stuck in the system or exit. With that, let's just go right into sort of the free market of healthcare, as it were, in the United States and how how that system should operate. You have government supplied healthcare insurance, you have Medicare, uh, you have Medicaid, which is actually a statewide Medicaid programs are are actually carried out by and dictated by state law, uh, but it's government insurance uh, to help prevent for low-income individuals from a health care. Uh, you have TRICARE, which is another government insurance system 
or strictly for military and Department of Defense. Now, on the commercial side, you have commercial health insurances, your Cigna's, your Kaiser's, your Humana's. They are all for-profit companies, and they work by selling insurance to primarily big groups. And by groups, I mean businesses. Essentially, the insurance works just as an insurance does for your home, your car, it's your, your pooling resource, so that when you actually need that help from a financial standpoint, you need to seek care, care is expensive, there is a stopgap. There is a way to protect you financially from large amounts of healthcare costs. Various levels of plans, bronze plans, silver plans, gold plans, platinum plans, and all of those you know, certainly increasing levels of cost your level of risk or the amount that you actually have to pay into the system. A, th a few key things there is that there's, on the on the commercial side of things, your description of buying into the plan and then drawing on those resources when you need them is 30,000 foot view of how that should operate. Now for the average person who's listening and they say, well I have you know these crazy high premiums, I pay this amount a month to buy into that, say, bronze plan, and I have certain coverages associated with that, well, in that case, why then, when I go to the doctor and I have a procedure done, do I get a bill for $5,000 or um, I have to, you know, co-pays and I have all these out-of-pocket costs? I thought, you know, with my plan, I was getting services c covered. So how do you answer that question when you, when you talk to folks about that and how do you start to contextualize, well, this is how that plan actually gets implemented for the average person who has, you know, minimal or either just routine sort of healthcare costs. So one thing to talk about with regards to that is the Affordable Care Act. Uh, the Affordable Care Act, one, whether you like it or not, agree with it, disagree with it, where you stand politically, are some benefits to what the ACA did. Primarily, it's in the wellness care and the primary care access. Before, you might have had to pay a copay. You might have had to pay out of pocket for a annual physical. Your pediatrics, you have a child. I have two young girls. They go on a regular basis to see their pediatrician to make sure they're healthy, get their immunizations. Those things used to be an out-of-pocket expense because it was wellness. It was not an actual problem-focused exam. Now, the ACA included those services actually at no charge because they, it, the focus was we actually want you to be healthy. We want you to have an, uh, a way to get into the system when you don't have a problem and actually pain you not having a problem within the system. And, and so there is some benefit. So a lot of, you know, if you have a base plan or a bronze plan, there's typically a high deductible. Now, may sound like we're demonizing insurance plans, but that's, nece that's not necessarily the case. But the insurance company has to have a way for you to kind of discourage you from utilizing that service. And that's why there's co-pays. That's why there's deductibles. It, puts, it makes you have skin in the game of your own healthcare. So while as providers, we want you to access our services, we want you to have, be able to be taken care of, there is a little bit of, you, know, you have to have some skin in the game. And so the better the plan, the less you have to pay up front, the lower the deductible. But it's, it's again, it's you having skin in the game. So in essence, those premiums that you're paying, you're not accumulating an account of, say, you know, for 20 years I've paid into this plan. I've paid my premiums. I've never missed payments. And I still have 
these out-of-pocket costs. It doesn't work in that way. Um, it's not an investment sort of uh, approach. It's a risk management approach, meaning if I have an issue, if I have a catastrophic event, I'm not going to be completely bankrupt and destroyed by the costs, but at the same time, uh, for me to access those costs, there's a certain buy-in associated with the plan that I've chosen and paid into. And that's the thing that uh, I think a lot of folks don't understand when they have co-pays and out-of-pocket services and that kind of thing. And one thing that you mentioned is is sort of the idea of a problem-focused exam. So for providers, the only way that I can think to describe it is our services are essentially barcoded, right? They're coded, and each service has a uh, price tag associated with it, right? So what you're paying when you pay the out-of-pocket, uh, you know, copay in the office isn't necessarily for the service. The doctor is going to bill the service at a negotiated rate based on what that barcode, for lack of a better term, is and what's the agreed upon price to be paid for. So that's why it's called a third party because the doctor and the patient, you know, they there's someone else involved in the conversation that says, your doctor recommended these services. You have this plan. We've negotiated this rate for that service and this is what we're going to pay the doctor. So you're essentially paying the administrative fees for all of that back and forth with your copay. Is that sort of an accurate description? It is. It is actually a pretty accurate description as how the, the system works. And the, the th again, the thing about healthcare insurance is it's, it's mitigating risk. It's pooled resources. So, John, you and I are healthy. We don't have major health problems. We have health insurance to protect us from catastrophic issues, but we are not drawing from the system on a regular basis. Now, the next guy down the street, he may have cancer. He may be drawing $50,000 in services to treat the cancer every six months. Well, he may have a same $500 premium. He probably has a much higher premium than that. But just to put things in perspective, we are paying into the system. We can utilize it when we need it. But there's somebody else in the system as well who's drawing far more than they're putting in. So it's that's how, again, insurance works. It's pooled resources to mitigate risk. And the unfortunate reality about the, the United the leading cause of bankruptcy in the United States, personal bankruptcy, is an inability to pay medical costs. That's so interesting when you think about, for a lot of people, it probably seems unfair to be paying the same premium as the guy who's drawing all of those resources for his cancer treatments. If we paid based on a sort of a, a health basis, right? if we paid based on how healthy we were, there would probably never be enough resources, number one. Uh, number two, folks that needed health care could never access it. And so if that's you, you're healthy now, but everybody was healthy till they weren't, right? And so they pay those premiums for their whole life so they can access it in their worst possible scenario. And God forbid anybody listening ever has to do that, but if you do, uh, that's what it's there for. But the impetus is always on, in my opinion, the personal responsibility to be healthy, right? The best way to keep your health care costs down is not have to utilize services. You can pay those premiums, and those are certainly meaningful costs, but it's never going to amount to the cancer treatments, the major surgeries, the dealing with chronic health issues later on rather than the acute sort of issues where if you snap your leg in half and you need to have surgery to get it pinned back together and you have to do rehabilitation after the fact, there's definitely going to be costs associated with that, but those are short-term 
relatively short-term costs as opposed to someone that has COPD or someone that has type 2 diabetes or someone that has some of these more uh, chronic diseases that are continually needing to tap those resources just to maintain a quality and quantity of life. So there's a there's a big difference there, I guess, in perspective. And could you talk a little bit about maybe the personal accountability aspect of, you know, the system's really not designed, as we've described it, to keep you healthy as much as it is to manage your problems. And that's what you described in the beginning. So uh, when you're dealing with patients and we're talking about the, talking with them about health as opposed to diseases, um, you know, from your perspective, what are some of the things that, you know, we really need to take personal accountability in and say, you know what, it's not someone else's job, it's not Cigna's job, it's not Medicaid's job to do these things for me. And if I do these things on my own, I'm going to limit my risk of having to accrue those additional costs. Actually, really where the healthcare system is going, because we've seen we've seen the unfortunate effects of healthy population and an unhealthy group of people actually taxes the system that much more. You look at the the actual US healthcare system, we spend more than every other country in the world and by 2020, we are expected to spend in on healthcare 20% of our gross domestic, which is four and a half trillion trillion. How many zeros is that? Nine, I think. It's ridiculous. That's how much we spend on healthcare. And and the truth, unfortunately, is that we don't get a lot for it. We are not the healthiest country in the world. If you look at just strictly those on Medicare, and yes, we know that chronic diseases increase as we get older. That's an unfortunate fact of aging. That's an unfortunate fact of life. But if you look at Medicare, those on Medicare, two-thirds of Medicare beneficiaries, those who utilize Medicare benefits for health care, have two or more chronic illnesses. 16% have six or more chronic illnesses. Within the last 10 years, 58% of those on Medicare had high blood pressure, 31% had ischemic heart disease, 28% had diabetes. So there's a lot of chronic disease within the system. And there's a lot of chronic disease within our our population. And a lot of that has to do with uh, being sedentary. A lot of that has to do with our diet. The American diet, unfortunately, is laughed upon in the rest of the world because it's not rich in the nutrients that we need. It's higher in fats, higher in carbohydrates, it's it's lower in the nutrients, the vitamins, the, the, the vegetables, the fruits. It's not effective. And so we're putting ourselves at risk day in and day out for these chronic conditions. And and so the system is, is just being taxed day in and day out. And so absolutely, there is a personal accountability piece to being healthy and getting out and exercising and, and eating healthy. And we've seen a lot more push within society to move our entire population in that direction. And the goal for that is make sure that we stay healthy and prevent us from developing these chronic conditions. Talk about diabetes a lot because diabetes is a disease of of the small blood vessels. And so the peripheral neuropathies, the, the tingling in the fingers and the toes and the inability to heal but the big thing is, is the eyes. The eyes are the only place in the entire body where we can see the small blood vessels, actually the blood vessels in general, without having to you know, slice you open, as I tell my patients. And 
diabetes, if it's poorly controlled, can essentially lead to blindness. And how does that affect our ability to function and live and, and truly provide our potential? We, we talk about health. You know, if we, we have to start with the assumption that if we're healthy, we are then capable and able, and if we're, and, and if we're unhealthy, therefore then rely on other individuals. We rely on, on other services to maintain. We're just not able to contribute to a growing productive society in the same capacity. So if our focus is on maintaining health and wellness, then that grows our society, that grows our economy, that grows our individual, but also societal and population-based production. Those are some really, really good points, and I don't want to breeze over the idea that $4.3 trillion next year, by 2020, uh, we see 20% of our GDP. I mean, I talk to a lot of people that have really passionate ideas about social justice causes and educational causes and these types of things. They all take money, right, to accomplish. They all take resources. And I think that a lot of times we forget that there's such an economic drain by being an unhealthy population. Six chronic diseases for a significant portion of that Medicare population, when you think about an entitlement like Medicare and why things like Social Security are not going to be around for our generation, is because of what you just said. I mean, think about that. Four tr that's mo more than the GDP of probably, I don't know what percentage of the world in terms of in terms of their entire you know national economy so i think we need to really think about that and think about you know if the best way to do what you're saying to reach your potential to strive after your passions to have the energy the resources the vigor the vitality uh the capability to go after some of these types of topics and social justice issues and is to be a healthy and thriving population and that's not anybody else's job Right? It's not Medicare's job. It's not Cigna's job. They're here to pick up the pieces when the crap hits the fan, for lack of a better term. Uh, but they're not supposed to sustain you as a healthy individual. So the best thing you can do is take care of yourself to not need to use um, you know, those resources and to free up some of that. If you free up, think about what a trillion dollars, think about what a 25% reduction in that expenditure would do to stimulate our economy. I mean, that... That's a staggering number, and I don't think we really have a context for that. Uh, but it's 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 something that I feel really strongly is um, is paramount in our ability to make an economic uh, shift in the way that we utilize those resources. And I think one way that we, as a healthcare system, fall short is actually engaging the patient in and talk about patients as providers, but just engaging the individual in their own healthcare journey. This is something that in, in, in our practice that we deal with a lot and we talk about a lot. And, and I, I love, love, love the people that I work with because we are all extremely passionate about educating patients. and We engage patients in where their eyes are. And from an eye health perspective, we, we talk about the benefits of their comprehensive exam, what we're seeing, the early detection. Early detection, not just in eye care, but across the board, is uh, we are going to develop problems, but we know that the earlier we detect it, the earlier we do something about it, the better the long-term outcome is. And we spend so much time with our patients going over each and every test that we do as part of our comprehensive exam. If there's a problem, we educate. I do not want any of my patients to have any outstanding questions 
when they leave the office. That if if that's the case, then I have failed as a healthcare provider. The more they know, the more they are engaged in their own healthcare, the better the long-term outcomes are. And and it's an area that I'm extremely passionate about. And and this is an area where I'll, I will kind of rail on providers out there is that we don't take the time and we don't have some don't have the resources some are constrained by the corporate policies what have you where we don't get the ability to take the time i was talking with one of my uh, team members the other day and and she was saying how she had to wait three weeks to get in to see her primary care provider and they told her she she specifically stated that there are three concerns that i need to have discussed and they had to tell her well, this appointment is only 10 minutes long and we can only address one issue. Well, okay, if we address one issue, then two other issues continue have to wait another two weeks, three weeks. Okay, so we get in and we address the second issue. Okay, that other third issue is now waited nine weeks before we can actually discuss that third issue. What sort of damage, what sort of negative outcomes or consequences are happening because of the having to wait nine weeks to be able to discuss that? We, we've We've lost in healthcare, we have lost our ability to listen. We've lost our ability to truly care for the patient, mentally, physically, emotionally. All of those things play a gigantic role in how healthy and, and how much the patient can enjoy their daily life. And, and that quality of life is what we exist to provide and what we exist to improve and what we exist to maintain. Something I'm thinking about as you're talking about this idea that you have to pick your problem for the day is a lot of times what patients are fixated on is not their biggest problem, right? So they want to address this one particular thing that's bothering them when of the three things, there's one that's a bigger threat to their long-term health. And because they got to decide, well, I'd rather talk about X, Y, Z thing and we miss and delay treatment of something that's more pressing in terms of their overall health and their long-term health, uh, that's where this stuff starts to snowball on people. And I think that that's uh, you know, another point to underscore, but I just, I've heard that so many times from, from patients that have seen specialists or other providers that they just don't have the time to listen to me. They don't have the time to be thorough, you know, in that evaluation. And, and like you said, it's the onus is on providers, um, but providers work in systems. And so sometimes you don't always have the freedom and flexibility to do that. But I'm, I'm interested in, because you've worked in the developing world and you've done and experienced a different model of healthcare delivery, a different healthcare system. In Central America, in your experiences, what what have you noticed that's different either in the way that the system runs, the outcomes, uh, how folks enter and navigate the system, and, and some of those key differences that you think we could either learn from or the way that we do things would benefit them? So I spent a year and a half teaching optometry. I was hired by the National Autonomous University of Nicaragua to work in the, to, to teach optometry and to teach high-level clinical skills, clinical decision-making, uh, introduce more specialty-level optometric care uh, to their fourth and fifth-year graduating uh, students. So the, the Nicaraguan healthcare system is a little interesting in the fact that they have a, a complete public healthcare system, which is free for anybody to, to get into. Now, many people don't even have the resources to travel to healthcare. To get, I was the second poorest country in the Western Hemisphere behind Haiti. So, from a standpoint, a lot of individuals, even though healthcare services may actually be uh, available and and at no charge, 
they may not even have the resources to actually get to a hospital or to a clinic to be able to access that care. And there is a big burden on the system when you do have a lot of free health care. We talk about this on the public health side of, of moral hazard. And we talk about moral hazard and the fact that when something, there's no skin in the game, there's no cost, it's completely free, you ultimately end up overutilizing this the system. You go to the ER for a cold because it's just easy and you don't, there's no cost to it. And so that is actually further taxing the system when there's no patient buy-in. And so there's lots of delays, especially in a system that is under that has it's under resourced and, and doesn't have the ability to to treat everybody with every condition in the time frame that is is appropriate. There's then a secondary level of service or a secondary level of healthcare, which is their paid public system. So if you work, you pay into their social security system, you receive healthcare services, which then offers greater access to essentially a public insurance-based system. And then from there, there's the private healthcare system, which is you know, strictly cash pay. There are private insurances that you can purchase and utilize. Uh, what's interesting about Nicaragua is that they, in Managua, the capital, there is a JCO. JCO is the, the system that, JCO is the body that accredits all US-based hospitals and you have to meet certain standards to be accredited by JCO. JCO has an international wing or an international arm that accredits hospitals nation or worldwide, and so they have the only JCO accredited hospital in Central America. So the quality of care there is is excellent, and I was grateful for that when I developed appendicitis and had to have my appendix taken out, and, and it was an amazing experience. But again, that's that's quality of care that is top notch, but only access only accessible by those with the resources to do so. That's a really interesting topic, uh, moral hazard, and, and how that the bioethics and uh, you know the morality of healthcare and all those things kind of intersect with the economics and the application of, of all of that is where things really get sketchy or where the waters really get muddy. And so that's a really interesting you know perspective and experience that you've had, and you bring that to you know your view of what we do here. I know you've heard of this concept of folks going on medical vacations, and we talked about this a little bit before the show where there are, are people that decide, you know what, I've got a $5,000 deductible. I can go to Mexico and stay for a week, have this procedure done by an American doctor in a maybe JCO accredited hospital, maybe not, uh, but I can have treatment in a one-week stay and vacation, and it's cheaper for me to go and do that than it is to go to my community hospital and pay you know, the costs associated with that. So I know you were sharing an experience that you had with a patient who, who did that. And uh, talk about what would motivate uh, people to do that and some of the potential risks to, you know, just kind of rolling the dice and going to another country to have, uh, you know, to have services that may or may not be quality. It is. It's, a, it's, an inter it's kind of a dicey situation because, you know, quality of care standpoints, there, there are safeguards in the U.S. healthcare system. There's, there are... There are guidelines, there are requirements to ultimately provide exceptional health. We, we too, I, I want to comment on the fact that we talk about the negatives, and, and John, I think this is, you know, this still stands out in my mind. We were kind of first initially discussing kind of public health and, 
and health the healthcare system and and you always refer to your public health doctors and your you know program as chicken little and the sky's falling and I, I unfortunately we can get into this well well the system's broken we don't like it it's it's gonna you know but there's a lot of good that goes on day in and day out and we are providers in the system for a reason care for our patients we want to provide that five star both customer service level because that plays such an important role. If you don't have happy patients, you don't have patients that gain the experience that they need from a healthcare provider, from a healthcare team, then what you do as a from actual what you actually provide, my opinion, worthless. But you also have to provide that that quality of care. And we're providers in the system for a reason. Because of why we care, why we do what we do. And and the healthcare needs that we personally have experienced and received exceptional care from within the system is because our system is excellent in so many ways. So I don't want to just sit and bash and and, and say everything is, is for naught and, and we don't, what we do doesn't matter because that's not even close to being true. But there are some patients, some individuals who are faced with the fact that don't have coverage, they don't have help from their healthcare insurance for certain poly, certain procedures, especially say, Cosmetic procedures, they can, they're going to be able to get that cheaper in another country. I had a patient who specifically told me, yep, I went down across the border into Mexico and had quite a bit of dental work done, and it cost a third of what I would have paid here in the United States. A lot of that has to do with the economy, and that has to do with cost of living and cost of, of supplies and, and income and how much you have to pay your staff. And so there's a lot of things that go into why things cost what they do. We could certainly delve down that rabbit hole of, of why our services in the United States are as expensive as they are. I've experienced this personally within the last couple of weeks. My daughter was in the hospital and ex- received absolute 100% exceptional care. Could not have asked for anything more. But one night in the hospital and I received a bill for $6,000. And and we kind of get back to the what we were talking about earlier with accessing care when there's a problem. Well, if you don't have insurance and you also don't have the resources to pay for wellness care, well, what's going to happen? You develop high blood pressure, you develop diabetes, you don't have the ability to get your medications. If you look at some statistics, you know it's somewhere in kind of you know 15 to 20 percent of individuals 15 to 60 years of age didn't actually purchase and/or take their medications for their chronic conditions because they didn't have the money to, to afford it. So what happens? You don't do what you need to do to treat this chronic condition. Well, that chronic condition gets worse and gets worse and gets worse. High blood pressure, now you have a stroke. Well, you couldn't take care of yourself. What happens? You go to the emergency room. You go by ambulance. You still don't have insurance. You still don't have money to pay for it. Now your bill racks up in the tens and twenties and thirties of thousands of dollars for your stroke care because you weren't able to take care of yourself in the first place, and now you don't have the funds to 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 pay that. Well, now the hospital just provided all of those services to somebody who can't pay back for those high-level services that they provided. And again, those high-level services save lives day in and day out all the time. But if somebody can't pay for that, where's that cost go? That cost goes on to somebody else who can pay it. Those services go up and up and up. And if we don't take the approaches that we need to address them in the first place, address the problem with patients actually having access to primary care, care that's preventative care that's going to allow them to maintain their health and prevent them from developing the debilitating. We talk about morbidity and mortality. 
we talk about the ways that these conditions affect those things or you know, patients develop significant life-altering complications from diseases, mortality. You know, you know, that's not a fun topic to discuss. But those are things that we, if we can prevent those things from happening, we talked about this, healthier society, more production, better, better across the board as a society, but that's why our system is so expensive. That really makes a lot of sense, unfortunately, but uh, that those costs need to be absorbed. But I think uh, the customer service piece, like you talked about, uh, you know, I, I interact with a lot of folks that they don't even bother to get their routine checkups and that kind of thing because the customer service aspect of the delivery at, say, the primary care level tends to not be as great as we'd like it to be. Um, and that's a generalization based on feedback that you get from patients. But, um, you know, the, the idea that early detection means we catch problems before they become so symptomatic that you're, you know, already in a chronic disease state and being able to have data over time that we can monitor changes in certain health-related uh, quality of life aspects in certain physiological processes, say if you've got a family history or predisposition to certain types of chronic disease issues. I mean, you really have to know where you are throughout your life and, and to to catch things early is more conservative treatment it's quicker treatment it's uh you know there are less adverse comorbidities and things that develop like those six additional chronic diseases that you can you know also get on top of those are all the types of things that i think aren't happening in a meaningful way if we were catching problems early you know you wouldn't be developing the problems that you know relate to strokes and these types of things but one of the things that i've you know, in dealing with patients, and you you may have had this, um, you may have had this experience too, is that the way that um, testing is ordered, right? So someone goes in and like, man, I've got this crazy rip roaring headache. First thing we're gonna do, we're gonna do a CT, we're gonna do an MRI. You know, we're gonna order a bunch of expensive testing that often comes back normal, which is good. You want to know that your brain's not bleeding. You want to know that you don't have a tumor, right? But you're still left without answers, and that leads to more testing, and Maybe an answer, maybe not. And all of that's just data, right? That doesn't even, that's not even treatment. It's tough for providers, too, to be able to do things in an economical way and in an efficient way while still collecting the data that you need to administer the appropriate treatments at the right times and in the right amounts uh, rather than just taking a sort of generalized one-size, you know, fits-all approach. So all those other aspects, you know, do con contribute to the healthcare costs. I had a lady that you know, explained to me that she had a bill for, you know, several MRIs that were specialty and that sort of thing that cost upwards of $16,000 just for the test, right? And that's no treatment. That's not even a diagnosis. That's just to sit in the machine with the dye, have the test done, all that. I had another guy who, you know, he had a heart attack up on the mountain, shoveling his car out of the snow and took a $52,000 helicopter ride. I mean, that's a life-saving service, but again, Who's paying for that, right? And, and and how are those resources being allocated? Because that stuff happens all the time. You know, that's happening on a day-to-day -day basis. I live not, or I work not far from Penrose, you know, downtown here, and I see the medevac helicopter going by on a routine basis. You know, and so when you when you start to think about emergency care, first aid care, and uh, you know that life-saving care that you're talking about, that's that's where a lot of the expenses are incurred. So um, early detection. Get the checkups, you know, be on top of things early on. If you're in your 20s, your 30s, your 40s, that's the time 
to start getting data. That's the time to start visiting with these providers, having a relationship, having a file open at a place where you can go and routinely, you know, be up to date and so that they know, you know, early on when you're starting to, to have a departure from health, right? Because before you have a disease or a pathological process, your health starts to decline. And we can often measure that before you're in full-blown pathology. So if we can kind of cut that off at the pass, that's going to be that's going to be better for the long time, for the long term. So talk about, um, you had kind of mentioned this model, this global service model, and we talk about the future of healthcare expenditures and the future of healthcare costs and billing and all that sort of thing. Could you describe that model and how that may be applied to, um, say, the practice of optometry, the practice of chiropractic, some of these different types of uh, healthcare fields? Absolutely. So I do a little bit of consulting um, on the in the high tech space, the um, health information technology and and EHR side of things, and so I interact with doctors on a on a regular basis, and, and a lot within the optometry profession are dealing with MIPS, which is the Merit Based Incentive Payment System. Um, it was rolled out within the last couple of years. It, they revamped PQRS, but it's boring stuff for providers. It's even more boring stuff for patients. But essentially, the we realize that in our, our kind of our fee-for-service system, well, you get paid for doing tests. And it leaves us with the question, did we need to do that test? Was that test actually medically necessary? And if so, beautiful. It gave us the data that we needed to tell you, yes, you in eye care, you have glaucoma, you need drops to prevent you from going blind. Without this test, we would not know. You would go blind without treatment. Now, did you really, risk factor-wise, do you really are high risk for developing glaucoma? Do we really need this test? So that's kind of that fee-for-service model. That's the way it exists. Well, right now, we've transitioned into a, a pay-for-performance type of approach where we're looking at where the, the healthcare system, the insurance companies, Medicare in particular, is looking at, are you actually effective as a doctor? Are you treating glaucoma? Are you lowering the pressure inside the eye like you're supposed to? Are you getting the beneficial outcomes? And are you doing it in a way that is cost-effective? Continuing in, in the, the optometry space, for example, glaucoma. Glaucoma is a, a slow, progressive, permanent loss of vision without symptoms that we treat and prevent further loss of vision. It's a question of, are you preventing the disease from getting worse? That's the outcome. Are you actually treating the disease? Are you tre are you getting it to, to improve? Are you preventing that disease from getting worse and the patient from losing vision? So we see the patient on a regular basis. They're on medications. It's a question of, one, are, as, I've, as I've said a couple of times now, are you actually getting the outcomes that we need to provide effective care or say you're providing effective care? And secondly, are you doing it? How many times are you seeing that patient? Are you seeing that patient? Well, if I see that patient once a month, I'm going to get paid once a month. If I'm going to do eight different tests, I'm going to get paid once a month and eight different tests. Did I really need to see the patient 12 times? Or could have I seen that patient on a, you know every three or four month basis? And so there's now a, a new, this year, there's a, a cost piece to MIPS. Again, are you doing it in a way that's cost effective? Are you seeing the patient 12 times when you really only need to see the patient three times? And eventually that's going to change. It's going to be the, we're going to be in a specific position where we're going to get paid one fee to manage that patient's condition for the entire year. So that's what we, it's part of the alternative payment models. It's, it's global services, global fee for service, meaning 
man, if I see the patient 12 times or I see the patient three times, I'm going to get paid the same amount. And so it comes down to actually reading, you know, getting paid to manage the condition. That's really interesting, and I think in a lot of ways, like as you're talking about that, I'm identifying, at least in my mind, pros and cons, and just thinking about how that's going to get applied on, on a grand scale, like on a, on a larger level, because you think about uh, kind of what you talked about earlier, where the cost of living and the cost of doing business and, and delivering healthcare services in different parts of the country even are going to be vastly different, right? Like if you're in you know, the middle of nowhere, somewhere in the Midwest, small town USA, where the cost of living is much lower, maybe the resources are much lower. You know, someone who's living in LA, the same treatment or the same disease is going to cost more there than it's going to cost in in small town USA. So I'm really curious how that's going to translate and how that's going to be fine-tuned, you know, to be equitable, you know, to make sense across the board. How clinicians are going to provide feedback as it relates to that sort of thing. It's it's really interesting and I think that with what I do, I'm Curious how that will, you know, also transpire in the sort of chiropractic space, uh, because I, I'm a fee-for-service provider. I'm not contracted with insurance companies, so I deal direct access with the patients in that way. Uh, and so uh, you've got a, you know, a bunch of us outside of the, uh, you know, health insurance system, and as it were, that are more or less going to be continuing to kind of do things the way we're doing them, you know, outside of that model, uh, at least for the time being. We'll have to definitely continue this conversation because there's a lot more there's a lot more that we could get into and so one of the things that I want to uh, discuss in part two here is going to be research you know clinical research how that applies to some of the healthcare uh, some of the healthcare pricing some of the healthcare um, scheduling in terms of fees for service uh, how that relates to the provider level you know and how we're, we're supposed to appreciate the quote evidence-based model of care how we synthesize that information along with other aspects to deliver quality efficient effective care and manage some of these conditions and also talk about sort of the future i mean you talked about ehr which which stands for electronic health records and the way that we can use technology to pool data to notice trends to fine-tune some of these things that we're talking about and use real patient interactions to guide that process and lastly, you know, the idea of artificial intelligence and, and clinical decision support and telemedicine and some of these different topics that, you know, with our advances in technology, how we're going to be applying those to our healthcare delivery system and, and how that's going to, you know, continue to evolve over the course of certainly our careers, but in the subsequent generations of doctors. That as we start to wrap up for today, just, you know, kind of on this topic of, of what we've, we've discussed, sort of the economics of healthcare and, and uh, how that applies to, say, the average person. Is there anything else that you'd like to wrap up with in uh, either words of encouragement, words of advice uh, for folks that are navigating the system, thinking about how to do the best with their resources from a healthcare perspective and how to choose providers uh, that are going to take good care of them and are going to do it in a way that's efficient and equitable? How, how are we supposed to uh, wrap up at the same time of delve into uh, clinical research and, and evidence-based medicine and and all of these things it's a it's a complex topic and i guess we yeah we will we'll have to do it uh, at another time um but from a standpoint just to to touch on kind of the research side of things is it, research is truly the backbone of what we do you know the advances that we have made in medicine and healthcare are due to researchers day in and day out whether it's basic science at the table actually looking at the molecular level 
individual cell body. It's in, it's insane, and and there are plenty of people out there who are doing an amazing amazing job. It it blows my mind. I can't really even talk too much more about it. But and eventually that'll translate to to actual clinical studies, and and then translate to what you and I do on a day in and day out basis. So as we continue to improve what we can do for our patients on a day in and day out basis, it's based upon the research that is ongoing, that has been ongoing, and will continue. I almost want to kind of save the rest of research for another another day, another topic, because there's so much more that we could discuss about it. But you know, we as providers, we we do talk about evidence-based medicine, and I think really the you know the sweet spot of healthcare and being a provider is where the art of healthcare and medicine meets evidence-based medicine. And you know, there's there's no point in providing a treatment that has been proven that it doesn't work, but as I tell my patients in, in our office, I have two ears and one mouth and I need to use those in, in, in correct and direct proportion because, and so you, you actually threw out the point of, you know, what do you tell a patient on how to select a provider? Find a provider that listens because as I tell my patients, I know eyeballs. That's what I went to school for. I know eyeballs inside and out, but I, you know your eyeballs. You live with your eyeballs day in and day out every single day, and I'm not there. I don't experience that. Our job is to put the two together. Our job is to marry your experience with your eyeballs, my knowledge of eyeballs, to develop a treatment plan that you agree on and understand that this is what we're going to do and why this is the proper approach for you. And then we can back it up with statistics and evidence that says this will work for your specific condition. And, and that, I think, is what is lost within healthcare. And I, I, I absolutely would like to give 100% recognition to my to the team that I work with in, in Bettner Vision because we are all so passionate about that. We are passionate about listening, educating, patients' experience. I can't tell you how many times I get, nobody's ever asked me that before. Well, I, yeah, I never even, nobody ever thought to, to, to delve into that deeper. Well, I've actually had this issue for like three years, but nobody's actually listened. And that was the biggest issue that they've had for the last three years. And we see that on such a daily basis, and, and it, it, it provides that experience, and it provides that, the emotional context to care. And so when it comes to find, it doesn't matter what type of provider it is. If it's a chiropractor, if it's an optometrist, if, especially if it's a primary care physician or primary care provider, you need to have somebody who will listen take what you say, interpret it through the lens of their specialty, and then develop a treatment plan that you understand. If you do not understand that treatment plan, if it's not clearly defined, if it's not clearly written out in a way that makes sense, the, the statistics show that you're not going to do it. Our outcomes are going to be poor. You're not going to get better. It's a lose-lose. And, and, and that, is, that is something that has been my driving passion as a provider from before I could it feel like it feels like from the day that I could walk, you know, I grew up in optometry. My father's an optometrist. My brother's an optometrist. Um, drive my wife absolutely bonkers when we go home because all we do is discuss clinical cases and all right, I digress. But, but the whole point again is I'll say it for the third time, listening, educating, those things are the backbone of everything that we do as providers you do as a provider, that I do as a provider, the providers that we work with and refer patients to, that is the backbone of what drives them. And ultimately is on a personal level, what's going to improve our, our, our healthcare system.
Yeah, I can't think of a better way to wrap up, you know, than on that note. Um, the reason why I'm doing this segment on the Thrive for the Cause podcast that I call Talk with the Doc is to have these conversations so that folks know in our community, there are some really great resources, right? There are some things that you can be engaged with that are going to help you maximize your health, to optimize your situation and your resources and, and all those sorts of things. And folks that are humble, that are um, you know really high quality, really high integrity in the healthcare space that are going to be you know helping you navigate this system because it is confusing for a lot of people. It changes frequently, and sometimes it's hard to just keep on top of things. So I appreciate you guys at Better Vision. I appreciate you, Doc, for um, you know for sharing your time. We're going to continue with the second part of this, and I've got some uh, some notes here, things I want to talk about uh, the technology, especially the artificial intelligence aspect of you know kind of healthcare. Uh, as it's continuing to progress, I want to talk about this concept of concierge medicine and how a lot of uh, primary care doctors are exiting the system, as it were, you know, to kind of reestablish a doctor-patient relationship on a direct pay sort of model and, and sort of where you see that fitting into all this. And we're also going to talk about something that you, you briefly mentioned, which is the idea that health is emotional and that health is a multifaceted entity. And that, uh, you know, we're used to talking about diseases and we're used to talking about when health is lost. Uh, so I want to talk a little bit more about the context around, you know, what really is health and how do we start to think about for our individual search situations? Where's the low hanging fruit? You know, where can I make the most improvement on my health vulnerabilities, you know, as it were, and, you know, and some of the opportunity costs associated with what you were talking about, which is when you're not thriving, when you're not capable there's so much more opportunity cost that's missed. You know, we and we can tabulate what it, you know, what the bill you ran up in the hospital was, but you can't necessarily quantify the lost productivity at work, the time that you missed out on with your friends and family because you're just not able and capable. And so those are all the things that really matter when you talk about quality of life. So I want to talk more about some of those topics. I don't want to go on for 3 hours here. We could keep going, but we're going to do that in part 2 uh, so that you can um you know, so that listeners can kind of isolate and, and piecemeal out some of those different topics. But really appreciate your time. Really appreciate your perspective, what we've shared today. And it's just the tip of the iceberg. And I think it's going to be a really great resource for folks that are, um, you know, interested in, in getting a peek behind the scenes at how providers talk about this stuff and where we're thinking about uh, our place in, in the system and in the community. So appreciate you, Justin. I want you to just have an opportunity to wrap up here and say anything else that you like as we close up. Uh, thanks, John. This has been an absolute pleasure, and uh, I really, really like what you're doing with the podcast, and it's an honor for me to be a part of it. And so, you know, getting back to kind of what we we talked about, Chicken Little and the the sky falling. The sky is not falling, and there are plenty of amazing providers out there, and there are the the true brainiacs who are working to improve the system so that we, as a population, become healthier, become happier, become more engaged, become really truly have the ability to live life and dream and and achieve and and grow into the people that we that we desire to be and without health we can't do that with health we absolutely can and and so we truly are working deeply passionately day in and day out to make that happen um, so the future truly is bright Thanks for listening to this episode of Talk with a Doc. Hope you enjoyed the content and that you found it valuable. 
If you did, please subscribe to the Thrive for the Cause podcast so that you're aware of updated content as it comes your way. And also share this with someone who you think would benefit. And if you're so inclined, leave a five-star review. I really appreciate it. 